Hello and welcome to the Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting. We focus on the craft, mindset and the business side and pretty much everything in between. My name is Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London and I'm joined by fellow actors, teachers and coaches. They are Brian Casp, who is based in Prague, Czech Republic. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And also we have Andrea Helen, who is based in Mallorca. Hello, Andrea. Hi, Gary. Happy to be here as always. So I think it's fair to say that it's universally common for most actors to start their professional careers auditioning for or playing small parts. And compared to playing recurring roles or supporting or lead roles, they are definitely a different animal and they bring their own distinct difficulties to the table. So this is what we're going to get into in this episode, how to deal with the demands of auditioning for and playing bit parts, cameo roles and functional characters. Mm. Mm. Exciting. <laughs> Brian's excited by this. Yes, I love it. It lights a fire in my heart because it is such a conundrum because in acting class, you're probably not going to be working on parts that are two lines long, probably. But uh, unless you're very lucky, you're going to be asked to start auditioning for parts that are two lines long or one scene. No, absolutely. It's a great point you make. So I, I like it. I like dealing with this. I think it's going to be very useful for people. You see, it's a very particular thing that we're dealing with in small parts. It's often difficult to get an angle on because, as you say, we're so used to being pushed in our training with our depth and our range that when we have to deal with a small part, it feels pretty insubstantial in comparison. But the thing is, we've still got a job to do. So this is going to be an interesting topic of conversation. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. But before we do, let's have a quick check-in with what we've been up to this week with regards to our creative endeavours. So who wants to kick this off? Well, okay, so I have two things, let's say. Let's start with two things. I might have three things, but I have at least two things. One is that I have done a little improvement on my... Ikea mobile <laughs> wardrobe because I originally had like a PVC pipe that was holding a sheet up as the backdrop for my self-tapes. And I went and bought a little piece of wood. It's about two and a half meters long. And I spent some time ironing and stapling some bits of muslin that I found from a previous project onto that piece of wood and making it into a larger backdrop so that I can do more full body shots when I'm in my makeshift studio here. So that is the improvement improvement that I've made. It's not done yet. I am in kind of awe in how you create all of this stuff. You are very much a handyman, but sometimes I'm a bit confused whether I'm listening to an acting podcast or a DIY podcast. <laughs> well, it, it should be both. <laughs> well, I think it's important to be working on it, especially now when so much of the business is going to self-tapes and going That's to true. home studios for voice work, that if you're not working on it, you are going to start to notice that the people who are getting better at building their studios and getting their technical DIY stuff together are going to have some kind of an advantage. I don't it's not going to eclipse an acting advantage if you happen to be brilliant at acting. That just overshadows any kind of technical issue that you have, but you know the the people that have a home sound studio are going to sound better and going to make more of an impression on their voiceover demos than the people who are just doing it in their phone. And that's going to lead to more work, most right. likely. There is a big name actor that I helped out for a self-tape here. And I just got a message from his representative that said, can you help us out with another tape? And I said, well, I've got all my equipment at home and I don't really want to meet with people these days anyway. I'm happy to meet with him over video. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we, but we don't have the camera. And I was thinking, that's a mistake. If you are needing to reach out to other people to get a camera that's serviceable these days, that's a mistake. And I get that maybe certain actors might consider themselves Luddites or something like that, where they don't really know about technical stuff, but that's going to, that's going to come back to bite you. You don't have to be an expert, but you should at least know how you're going to make a tape if you need to. Right. The other thing, just to 
an update as I finished my treatment. Very good. And I sent it to my friend and I showed it to my wife and they both had comments. And now I am working on the second draft of the treatment. And it's, you take something that you, you go, okay, the first draft is a vomit draft and it's just, I'm going to just do it and get it out there. And the second time through, I'm like, oh, I'm really making these choices. And I, I really, I don't know. I'm like, I feel much more cautious about writing it. And I feel much more judgmental about what I'm writing for this second draft. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'll get, get it finished as well, but it, but it's harder almost. I've made a lot of changes, but I finished that first draft and that was, that's good. And I'm, I'm working on the second draft. So here we go. That's monumental. You are slowly giving birth. Yes. And it is, it is, I'm, I'm, just a just a sliver of the pain that real writers go through, but I'm I am feeling the pain yeah. of that birth. It's all relative. Uh, yeah, I guess. But so that's good. my that's my second thing. And then today I heard that a film that I was supposed to start shooting. I mentioned it actually on the podcast in March. I was supposed to start shooting. They've said now we're going to start again. We're going to start in April, and I'll have a few days in Prague and then two weeks in Moscow. So. Wow. Yeah, I'm a little bit apprehensive. It's going to be in June, so hopefully the things will have died down enough so that it won't be unsafe to travel. But Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. To Moscow, yeah. as they say in the Three Sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to Moscow, right. And Andrea, what have you been up to this week? I've been reading more, taking more time to read, which is very good. Reading more novels, reading books about productivity, creativity. I'm reading scripts. So that's been really, really nice. And I'm starting to give birth to some Zoom class ideas as things have been so in flux, or as my friend in the UK says, shifting sands, my dear, shifting sands. And I'm certainly not alone in this. I feel like some of the ideas that I have, I'm taking in some new information and maybe reforming some things. So I'm working on that in my brain mostly. And then I'm trying to help several people with their projects in terms of connecting to production companies and things like that. So I'm trying to support a couple of different projects that are coming along really nicely. Scripts are in good shape and the concepts are very complete. And so I'm hoping to be some support there. So that's what I've been working on, a little that's behind great. the scenes. And I also just want to underline that part of it, Andrea, because, I mean, I love the idea of putting pieces together mm-hmm. that you're talking about yeah. and facilitating yeah. the projects that are happening. And and I think that when you can do that, then you become much, much more valuable to like, I, I find that I much prefer working with people who aren't just going, hey, when are you going to give me work? Yes. That when you were saying, okay, let's find it. Let's get this done. Let's, right. Let me connect you with who I know. We'll, we'll put our strengths together. I'll be proactive about things. I think yeah. that begets much more work in a much more powerful way than just waiting to be hired. I totally agree. And it's a, it's a shift that some, you know, some people have that naturally and some people come to it as, as life moves us forward. Sometimes you just get to that. Well, Marie Forleo, who is working just tired really of like, waiting. She calls it the oh fuck it moments, you know, where you're like, I just sort of don't care what anybody thinks or says anymore, and I'm going to move forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's, it's sometimes yeah. you reach those quite organically as you just have enough life experience and you're like, okay, we just got to move on with this. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. It's yeah. like, there's enough waiting for Godo. Thank you yes. very much. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I know I'm digging into this maybe too much, but like I found that sometimes people feel like they're reluctant to do that because they feel like they haven't been given permission to do it. And I would say to those people, like, just start doing it, blag your way through. If you know the term, maybe I didn't know that term before I started talking to British people, but like blagging your way through, basically like fake it till you make it. You know, if you say, I'm going to make this thing happen. People will go along with it. Things can happen just because you decide that they're going to happen. That's right. And you don't have to wait for someone to give you permission or hand you the baton or anything like that. You just start going, well, I'm going to just start moving in this direction. Exactly. And more often than not, that will have some effect. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I'm going to shut up now and let Gary <laughs> say about what he's done. 
So, yeah, I've spent all week working with an actress who's been working steadily and making a living, but they want to reassess and reevaluate where they are in their work. They've had a certain amount of experience and success, but they feel at this stage in their career that their work is still pretty hit and miss, and they're not enjoying it as much, and there's a feeling of getting away with stuff and not coming alive in the way they want to. So I got pretty deep into some diagnostic sessions and deconstructing their technique and her working process, and we began to look at things, and I began to offer ways of adjusting her old ways, offering her new ways of doing things and trying to break those old bad acting habits and introduce um, good new ones and, and really sort of offer some new tools and techniques to enable all this to happen. Dr. Gary. Dr. Gary, yes. Doctor is in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you find that some of it is technique-based where someone kind of gets into a habit and needs to kind of renew their technique and some of it is actually how they're looking at the technique, that the technique is fine, but it's the paradigm that they're looking at it through is needs to be adjusted? Well, yeah, absolutely. There's an overlapping for sure. A big part of it is not having had a systematic training originally. And her work as a result is very piecemeal and ad hoc. And she's using tools and techniques that are kind of grabbed from everywhere. And she's not getting them to gel or work synchronistically together. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's the other aspect of this, which is, you know, the classic tools that she does use, the understanding of those tools and techniques, I found out were intellectual rather than active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, intellectual rather than active and embodied. So there's a there's a disconnect there. And um, there's also the, the personal mindset. You see, they've gone on autopilot and they're not enjoying it. And what I found from all the unearthing that we did is they don't have a creative process which allows them to interact with the tools they're using in a joyful and creative way you know, that makes them feel they are building something or sculpting a role. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you see, I'm getting more and more actors who feel like they don't have a cohesive technique, (laughs) but are somehow intelligently winging it or blagging it. They can still get the jobs, but after a while, it it feels like a law of diminishing returns because there's no or not enough of a creative process that they enjoy involving themselves with, you know, Building something from the ground up and asking questions and problem solving and sketching something out and then filling it in. And in the end, you know, that's something that catches up with you, I think. And do you feel like there is a correlation between that feeling and the quality of work that the person might be getting? Yeah. Yeah. If you are looking at your career and thinking, I should be getting better work or I should be getting better roles or working on better projects, that that might be a symptom of this deeper kind of lack of systematic creative endeavor absolutely. where you're kind of just on autopilot. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we're dealing with is there is a knock-on effect as you become less fulfilled, you become impatient and maybe even resentful, and it's inevitable that you enjoy it less. And it's inevitable that you'll take this into your castings and you'll take it into your work when you get cast. And, And like we talked about in the Setting Goals podcast, when things get stale or the joy goes out of something, you have to really reevaluate things and find that spark again. You know, it's constant work. It's like life, really. I mean, you've got to play the long game. And it's a constant renewal. Constant renewal. Absolutely. You get into a habit of doing things and you forget that, oh, I need to be constantly pushing and renewing. Yeah. And then it starts to get stale. And then, yeah, you got to go in for a a tune-up. It's a very interesting process of deconstruction and rebuilding that we've been going through. I was just having a conversation today about what it is to be in a transitional phase. And it sounds like where they are right now doing the kind of deep dive that they are with you is a necessary transition into the next phase of their work, which will hopefully be deeper and more joyful. And it'll be interesting for you to see what kind of roles they then attract. Yeah. Right. As they come into the audition room or the Zoom room with a different kind of enthusiasm or more creative ideas or a different kind of confidence. It'll be interesting to see how it ends up. But there is a value in being in that decision making phase and really assessing where you are in that moment before you take the next action. Great. 
And going from that, let's go to another end of the spectrum. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So moving on to our main topic, this whole world of small parts, cameo roles and functional characters... I think it would be a good place to begin with discussing the differences, you know, if there are any between the small parts, cameo roles and functional characters. And if so, what are they? So, yeah, let's make a distinction here. Um, What are your thoughts? I would say that a bit part is going to be something that is maybe going to serve some of the story in terms of like a waitress that needs to be there to offer more coffee or, you know, a journalist who's going to shout a question. It could be a little bit larger, but someone who's not going to have much of an impact on the story beyond the kind of casual interaction that is required for whatever that scene is. That would be a bit part. A functional role is a character that is not, let's say, going to continue with the story, but is going to provide some valuable piece of information or move the main characters who are going on the main journey into a new space, you know, kind of have an effect on the knowledge or the direction that that particular scene is going in. But they wouldn't maybe be written so much with their own personality and their own even mini arc. They're mostly to provide that bit of exposition or that bit of information. And then a cameo role, it's got more of a spark to it, like a funny flair or some kind of dramatic uh, moment or something that has some kind of arc to it or some kind of something that you would remember that is there not just for the information or the exposition that it might bring, but to really provide some character moment, even if it's brief. Andrea, what do you think? I agree with you, except when you describe a cameo as something that offers a certain kind of a personality or an energy to the piece. But there can be non-speaking cameos, in my understanding, as well. Well, cameo could be like Alfred Hitchcock had cameos in his pieces where he wasn't speaking. But I think it could also be a famous person is going to make an appearance in a project where they are only in that one little bit. And that may be non-speaking for the audience to go, ooh, there's a famous person there. But I was kind of defining it in terms of maybe someone who was not famous doing that little bit and how they would write the role. Right. You know, a cameo would be something that has a little bit of flair because even a famous person in a non-speaking role or a non-remarked role is going to have a little bit of flair because you're using the fame of the person who's doing it for that little adrenaline hit that the audience might get. Okay. But I could be wrong. I'm, I'm kind okay. of guessing. So I, I don't know. I'm open to you guys disagreeing with me. I'm not reading a dictionary <laughs> definition of these things. No, I think your definitions are pretty solid there. I wanted to say that I do think it's important to recognize functional characters as having a specific story function rather than just sort of being a blip in the storyline, like the waitress pouring the coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. So that the functional character often, as you say, offers a piece of information that helps build the story or shift the story in some way, because how you approach it is going to be different. Well, all of them are small parts by their very nature, right? And there may be some overlap in these labels. Some have more functional aspects to it than others. And, you know, I think you've both summed it up pretty well. And the thing about cameos is, is 
they're often a star turn. You know, think Quentin Tarantino and his infamous cameos in all of his films. But I just want to add something maybe to the discussion about cameos. Whereas a bit part is ancillary and they are part of a reality of the scene and the world of the story, for instance, like a secretary or a PA to the boss who comes in once and feeds the lead character, they come in and say, oh, it's so-and-so on the line for you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a functional character, as you said, and they're really there to serve and provide exposition and give info. But one thing with the cameo, I'll add, is a cameo is sometimes an opportunity for a concentrated character portrayal, not your standard waiter, bartender, policewoman, and they're often unforgettable and an extreme character that appears once but adds a a very specific tone and character and idiosyncrasy to the overall world of the story as a whole. Think of it as a concentrated injection of a type or an idea that really just enhances and enriches the world that we're in. Well said. So then the question, I think, the active question for people who are listening to this is, well, so you get an audition piece that is a few lines or one line, really. So what do you do? You know, right. Do you do you treat it like a cameo where you're going to add this characterization to it? You know, because we had an interview with Nancy Bishop and other casting directors will say this as well, where she said, you know, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And if you have just a few lines, say your few lines and get the hell out, you know, don't don't make it into a thing and you have to serve the story as well. So how do you know what you should be going for here? That is absolutely the primary question to ask. Well, you could begin by knowing the role you're dealing with and understand the job you need to do. Meaning, know your purpose in the whole story. I mean, what are you there for? Are you there to support the lead? Are you providing a comic foil or comic relief? Or are you just providing a very pragmatic function? You know, a character in a bank just serving the lead character who comes in to take some money out. So once you've clarified that, then you can decide what to do with it, you know, lean on it or not. If it's a comedy, you're likely setting up a laugh for the series regular. Or if it's a drama, you're serving the story of the series regular. Mm -hmm. You know, keep that in mind. So, yeah, understand your job. Stealing the show should not be your goal, but enriching the scene by doing the task with the energy the task demands should be uppermost in your mind. To get specific about it, do you have tips as to how people can recognize what their role is? I mean, I know we talked about it in our script analysis podcast, but that was dealing with two characters who were the leads in that piece. So if you have a piece that where you only have a few lines, do you know how you can tell the difference beyond just intuiting it? I mean, I know it's very general because we don't have a specific script in front of us, but... Well, there's a saying, um, small parts are the hardest part to audition for. Well, because of the lack of information. You're not given the whole script. You have often very sketchy character information in the breakdown. Sometimes there's not been a great deal of care given to the writing of the character. You have to decide if a characterization is going to totally annoy the casting director or if it's going to be the thing that makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. You just may not have access to the kind of information that you need to come in with some certainty, right? And you only have this little bit of time to strike just the right tone. Whereas if you've got a full-on scene with somebody, certainly in an audition situation, allowing for nerves or one moment to really sort of be extraordinary and the others to be working their way there, you can see a flow and you can develop a flow and be working off of your partner in a certain kind of way. But with these roles, often you don't have anybody to work off of. (laughs) You just have to sort of come in, nail it, not offend but impress and get out, as Nancy said. And that's it can be very challenging. Well, yeah, it scares actors because there's not a lot of info to hang your hat on. And you either do one of two things because of that. Right. You either retreat and become sort of beige and disappear and non-committal uh, because you feel you can't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Or you go the other way and you add to it and you hypercompensate and you try to steal the show. Mm-hmm. You need to have a look at the script and intuit whether you are there with a real purpose or there just as a functional ancillary responder or to feed lines. I mean, basically, know what your role is in the scene, keep it simple, come on clean, have a clear point of view and complete your action with commitment. 
However, there are times where there are specific descriptions in the casting breakdown. And if that's the case, then add this particular colour to your mere truth. Um, what I mean is, is embody a way of doing it behaviourally that honours the breakdown. So characterise it. Make a choice that actually characterises it. If the description is something like, I don't know, a laid-back bartender, then adapt that point of view in your intention of the few lines that you have, but also in your body. So come with a very characterised, embodied point of view, a kind of essence of the character breakdown and that description as laid-back bartender and do it internally and externally. I had an audition where I had to interrogate the main character and I was questioning them about where they had been. I was looking through their passport, but it was, you know, embassy official was the character name. And I did the audition a few times and it was fine. You know, it was, you know, I was doing the job and asking the questions and, and that was fine. And I was doing a self-tape, so I didn't have the casting director's feedback. The person I was reading with said something and for the last time, I was really, really frustrated with having to deal with this person. And I came in with a really, really strong attitude and opinion about what I was doing. And that was the take that I sent. And they actually had me audition for a larger role as a result of that. And I booked that job. So I think that it's really important to always look for that opinion, to really focus on that. And it doesn't need to get in the way. It doesn't, it shouldn't get in the way of the scene. But if you give up too easily to the other characters, because I've lived that out as well, where I am come in deferential to the characters being the leads or the actors being actors that I know and have basically disappeared into the scene, meaning that I could have not been there and it would have been the same. Not that I was dis not I was so such a good actor that I was disappearing and Brian was gone and the character was there, <laughs> right? So I think that the lesson that I learned from that is like, you have to come into it with an attitude, whether that's written there or not. And oftentimes it's not written. Oftentimes there isn't really any indication as to what attitude or what perspective, what perspective the character has. Thank you. And so you just have to take a shot and go for it. And yes, you want to look at what is going to best serve the story, but not just make it easier. You know, if you're serving coffee and, and depending on what the other people are talking about, maybe you have an opinion about what they're talking about. Maybe you haven't heard it. Or maybe you have something else on your mind. Maybe you're dealing with a sick kid at home and you just want to leave, you know, and it doesn't need to be like you're making the whole scene about that. But if you come in with something, that's going to make it more interesting. Yeah. Having auditioned for countless of these type of roles, the ones that have been the most successful for me and have led to larger experiences have been the ones where I've really come in with a real strong opinion. Yeah, I think preparation is so important. And I think Brian's making a very important point about this. You're still presenting, you know, a human being with a point of view and without going against the intention of the script. If you can personalize the experience in some kind of a way, it only helps. And I've had the same experience, Brian, that when I've prepared that way and I know exactly how I feel about it, and then I've been very specific as well with building up the other characters in my imagination. So how I respond to them has specificity and understanding. And I'm really clear as well, especially with self-tapes, you know, where they are, if they're higher than me, if they're lower than me in terms of camera, like all of those little things, who's got the authority, what's the kind of energy I want to give off in, in relationship to this character. I mean, all of those pieces add up and I find that they can be really instrumental in making the difference between whether or not you book the job. It's just when it's the smaller part, it's harder to see it because it's not probably going to be written in. When it's a larger part with a larger journey, there's going to be much more of a chance of the writer letting you know where it is. And so sometimes it's easy to forget, oh, I actually also have to do this other bit. I can't just give the information. Is because it's easy to forget you have to do that too. Yeah, but there are other ways of leading you to making choices which aren't necessarily in the scene. If you read the whole episode... Well, you, well, you don't get the whole film. Now. Yeah, you don't get it. Well, let's say you yeah, get the role. Very rarely. If you get the role, yes. If you get the role, yes. 
Well, actually, quite a bit here in the UK. I've worked with a lot of actors who get the whole episode when they're auditioning for a few scenes from that episode, oh. um, particularly if it's TV, for sure. i got to come to the UK more. Los Angeles, you'd never get it. And from this, you should be able to get a sense of style, rhythm, whether it's a gritty piece, a fantastical piece, you know, it's set in the business world. So if you've got the luxury of being sent the episode, read it. And if you can't get the clues from the scene because your dialogue is very functional, non-expressive and limited, then you should be able to get the clues from the rest of the episode and really get an understanding of where it's pitched and what world you're in. So you should be able to get an, an idea of how to pitch it from that if you can't get it anywhere else. Once you get the role, there is also a chance that you'll be asked to improvise. I got a story when I worked with Helena Bonham Carter on a film called Wings of the Dove. I had a very small role. I had two lines. I was playing a cheeky, chappy cockney with a flat cap and a Victorian moustache. It was sent in the 1910s or the 1920s. And my lines were something like, if I remember rightly, Oi, you, are you blind? There's a queue here. Get to the back of the queue. Something like that. Yeah. And yeah. the director asked me to have some banter. He said, you know what, forget the lines, just do something similar to the lines. You don't have to get them perfect, but have some banter with her and have an exchange, a to and throw, and you're not very happy with her pushing into the queue. Yeah. And on top of that, every take, what happened was Helen and Bonham Carter kept pinching my bum before the take, <laughs> just before action was announced, or she'd nudge me in the back of the knee. So I would buckle. Obviously, she was in playing with me and encouraging me to have the response that I was meant to have, which was, you're a toff. You entitled lot, you can just push in and do what you want. You think you can do what you want. But I could improvise that because I had a clear take on the character's point of view. And from that small germ, if you like, I was able to take on extra lines or extra work or extra improvisation that the director wanted me to do. And it really helped. And it was just from that one line. So, you know, really try and gauge from whatever you can and make a very clear choice about what your point of view of the world is. And, you know, I had a helping hand that he was a particular socioeconomic class. So you look at the lines and you go, well, obviously he doesn't suffer fools gladly, particularly toffs. So picking up on what Brian said about having a strong point of view on one line, you know, that got me out of jail. And it will certainly help you if you're asked to improvise with a small part and add extra to it. Have you both also had the experience that often the directors haven't given a great deal of thought to how it should be played? So you've booked the role, the casting director and director have seen something interesting and they like it and they think it's going to be a nice fit into the whole. And then you get to set and you don't really have much direction to begin with. Yeah. Right. And then you sort of discover it together, whether it's that they need to reblock it for some reason or there's something new and interesting that's happening. I find that you've got to be a bit flexible. You've got to come in with ideas and also an open mind because these kind of moments with these characters can easily be, just as you described, revamped on the set. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Which can be a lot of fun, but you have to be paying attention. You have to be really listening, in my experience, to everything around you, whether it's watching what's happening with the DP, first AD, really tuning into the energy on set. Are they running behind? Are they all stressed out because of time? Do they just really need you to sort of nail it and then get out of there? Like You've got to be very conscientious about being a part of a whole picture and that it's a moving piece. And you yeah. may very well be moved far from where you expected to be when you showed up on set. Absolutely. You have to. Very often they have hired you because they go, yeah, that'll work. Mm -hmm. Maybe they love it, but often they'll be like, yeah, that'll be fine. And you look right. And then it could be that the lead character who's in the scene, you're the largest character in the scene, is going to have an opinion about how that person, that actor, wants things to happen. And that actor is probably going to have a relationship with the director and the DP. And so you definitely need to be aware and flexible and listening. You know, walking on set for your bit part, 
is a real thing to get used to because the actors that are around you are all in the flow for the most part. They're either actors that have been shooting five, six days a week for weeks or months. Even if they haven't been on that project, they're probably the actors that get cast in those roles are actors that are used to delivering and being on sets. And so if you're coming in for an early job in your career and you're, you've got this bit part, you really want to be prepared and you want to be listening. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but usually the people that go up on their lines are not the people with the most lines in the scene. No. <laughs> they're the people that have the least lines in the scene. Yeah. Because they're not used to the pressure of being on a set like that. Yeah. And they undersell the amount of preparation that they might need for those two or three lines or whatever. And they get yes. nervous because they probably haven't been doing it as long or as frequently. When you have a bit part, especially when it's a functional part, it, usually the people that get the functional parts have been doing it for a little while, usually. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have some chops, but for a bit part where you're going to ask if you have coffee, you don't undersell the preparation that you're going to have to do after you book the role to be ready to be on set and hit your mark and say your bit and get, and then get out of the way. Like, like you said, Andrea, have your moment and then get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I find that often I have generally not felt that I'm in much of a position to broach a conversation with the director on a, on a big set. Absolutely not. Right. No, I wait to be told what we're doing, when we're doing it. And then I'm just listening, listening to everything around me so that I can keep my ideas going and I can keep fresh and I can be a productive member of the cast, you know. But there was a scene I did in a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's part of a huge, huge sequence where this camera is just rolling through a major space with lots of characters. And the staging of it, the blocking of it was was really critical. And initially they wanted three of us to be in a conversation and the camera would be moving around us. And Jake Gyllenhaal actually said to the director and the DP, who is very well regarded, Gyllenhaal said, you know, I feel like their reactions to me are so important. And if you're going to keep moving around us, you are risking losing their reactions. That's nice of him. I know. When has that happened last? And so he said, can we talk about a way to lay this out so we can really make sure we don't miss that? So we ended up restaging it. I mean, in the same basic space, but the whole way that we shot it, which was the three of us looking at an art piece was because Jake Gyllenhaal said, forget the camera moving around the three of us and focusing mostly on me. I want to see what my character doesn't see, but what the camera should see, which is how these women are responding to what I have to say. And that's the kind of stuff that can happen. The entire staging, in Gary's case, the dialogue, it can all be changed up and you've got to be able to flow with it. Yeah. Yeah. And your comment about coming in with ideas great. You should definitely have that. And you should definitely be prepared to be your own director and just kind of do your own thing until you're told otherwise. But at the same time, especially if you're more green, let's say, if you're there in early experiences, you probably want to just do your thing, wait, be there if they need to tell you to do something else and not walk on set and say, this is how I want to do this. (laughs) Because you are pretty much a guest, especially if you're just there for the morning or the afternoon. And, and they got a show to do. Yeah. And if they're friendly, fantastic. And if they're considerate of you and your opinions, then that's a boon and you should appreciate it, but don't expect yeah. it. Just picking up on what you were saying about the danger of playing a small role and underselling yourself and under-energizing yourself when you've got to parachute into this production and you're a day player, if you like. You know, let's say you haven't had much experience and it's your first role in a film. I mean, I remember my first film role and I was cast as a minicab driver called Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and they'd, they'd originally conceived the character as an English-Spanish character, you know, pretty much like myself. But however, once I got on set and I was working with the director a bit more and hanging out with him, talking to him over a coffee, 
they they said to me, he said, where are you from originally? And I said, well, I'm from the Midlands originally, the West Midlands. And he said, you know what? I want you to, to do it like that. I want you to do it in, in, in that accent. So yeah, I had to adjust pretty quickly. What helped me was to, first of all, understand what my function was and also understand what my point of view was of the people that I was driving around in my minicab and then adjust that because there are differences, of course. Yeah. My old LA acting teacher said, the first thing you do when you go on set is to look at everyone on set and how they are working and observe how focused they are and try and stand back and observe the other actors shooting their scenes and see how the energy is. And then you join the game, if you like. It's like a, you know, like a football match and join it with the energy and intensity that everyone else has and everyone else is playing the game with. That's exactly right. Well said. So that can be a very effective way of preventing yourself from disappearing on your first day because it's so overwhelming and the fear of being on set for the first time. You know, if I'm going to parachute in, what am I going to parachute into? So it's really beneficial to be aware of how things are operating and at what rhythm. If you are playing a day player part, let's say we're calling these day player parts, even if you're there for a few days, and you've conceived of a character that is revolving around his Spanish roots, because that's what you auditioned for, and that's what you were told the part was, and you've done a lot of work on it, and that's your conception of the character. And then you get on set, and the director says, oh, no, no, not Spanish, uh, from the Midlands, like you. <laughs> it might be hard to let go of all of that work, and to go, okay, yeah, fine. I'm going to do this whole other thing now. But that can happen. Yeah. And, and just because I don't know if people got that from, you know, it's not just change your accent. Mm -hmm. It's you're from a different place. Your it, character. it can be a yeah. whole different kind of attitude the way a Spanish cabbie would be doing it versus someone from the Midlands would be approaching things. Oh, you just gave me a great idea for a short film, Brian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is <Yeah>. that? <laughs> I'm seeing I'm seeing a film set right where it's uh, where the director is just keeps asking the uh, the day player to to keep changing the character until they get it right. <laughs> the actor the actor coming up with not just different dialects and heritages but totally different perspectives on the main character. Well, that sometimes <laughs> can happen, you know. Yeah, be aware, folks, because of all the roles. The small bit part is most likely to be fucked around with, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. your interpretation of it as you were reading it is not what the director's interpretation was, or it's not serving the story in the way that the director wanted it to. Right. And so mm -hmm. you just have to be flexible to that. It could be your interpretation is valid, and they're not trying to fuck with it. It's just that your interpretation is different, or they've changed their mind. Well, if the director has changed things and, and, and given you more lines or taken away your lines or done a complete, you know, 360 turn on the character. Well, what you do then really is, is keep it simple and you make a strong offer with a view of being directed take to take. You know, I've had, I had five lines on in a, in a particular scene and I've shown up on set and they've said, Hey, just say these two, you know, that happens all the time. Yeah. Or they say, you know what, actually, you're not going to say anything. That's more likely than given more lines. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Well, and, and I've also had a situation where they did give me lines, but because I hadn't done my homework and really studied the script, I was kind of out of sorts with the lines that I was supposed to have because they basically took the lines from other characters that were in that scene and gave some of them to me. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't quite know what to do with it because I hadn't done my homework. Right. You got to do your homework, but you also have to be prepared to throw it all out the window. Yeah. At that point, you're in a little bit more of a dialogue with the director. If they've really given you such a change, I think... What do you mean by dialogue? Meaning it's a two-way conversation, huh. right? Like, if okay. I, if I, initially, if I come in and I'm the bartender and I do this thing and I do my lines and they're like, great, that's a wrap on Andrea Helene. Great. And if I come in and he says, you know what, we want to try something. Uh, can you do this X, Y, Z? Then I, I feel that I'm in more of a dialogue with the with the director which is that then it's i feel much more welcome to check in with first ad director dp whoever it is that's really kind of clocking this with me continuity whoever and going is this working are we getting are we getting there where you need should we keep playing with something do you want me to make some more adjustments and then i feel at that point we're crafting something together and they're going to be the judge of whether it's serving their ultimate goals 
Well, yeah, I think that's right. There's two things here, right? In this instance yeah. that Andrea's talking about, the door has opened yeah. to dialogue and there is a process you can work from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the other instance, as Brian said earlier, on first blush, if you come in, you just do it mm-hmm. uh, until you're spoken to and that's it. But but if that door does open with a director, then great. Yeah. But be sure to keep the dialogue short, succinct, yeah. intelligent and brief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And also, I just want to make it very clear, not contradictory. No, no. Just be very clear about that because a dialogue means, is this what you want? Because at that point, you want to do what they want you to do. If there's a chance to offer something up and say, hey, what if I did this? But if they say no, don't do it like that. Don't argue. You know, you're there for the day. Uh, yeah. Let the people who are there for weeks and weeks do the arguing. <laughs> I've also seen that happen where someone isn't doing what they want them to do and they go, that's great. Um, actually, you can go and relax now. Hey, you over there, Mr. Extra, can you say this line? You you say that line the way we want. So, you know, like not to put the, yeah. the, to scare people, but you are there to serve the story and the and the personification of the story is the director. You know, and we're talking about film here. Obviously, with theater, it's it's quite different because yeah. hopefully this will get worked out in rehearsal and it's it is much more of a dialogue and rehearsal process. Yeah. But yeah, you do not want to be contrary and argue your case and tell them why they're wrong no. to want it like that. Great. I think we've covered a lot. So now it just remains for us to wrap up. And before we do, we always like to check in with each other and offer some kind of top tip. So, Andrea. I've just finished Ken Follett's latest book, which is a prequel to Pillars of the Earth called The Evening and the Morning. That was a total treat. And the whole time I'm, you know, trying to imagine it as a film, if they ever make it into a film. I was not crazy about the, um, I think it was a mini series format that they made of Pillars of the Earth. I, uh, To be honest, it, it didn't blow me over. But I think it's a really great story and highly recommend that. And as well, started watching a couple of programs. I started watching a show called The Wilds, which is Amazon Prime. Mm. And yikes how do i describe this story so i don't want to give it away it's let's say you've got eight young women all sort of mid-teenagers like 16 17 who end up as part of a quote-unquote retreat to help them deal with some struggles they're having and they end up stranded on an island and there's much more to the reason for their being stranded. But it's giving some these young actresses some really meaty stuff to work on. And I've been studying their performances, and there's some really nice work that's happening there. I, I'm often in awe of the young performers today who are doing really intense character work and who are living out extraordinary circumstances and they're going all out. And, you know, I think the opportunities to do that kind of work have just ballooned since I was, you know, 25. So I'm pretty awestruck by the capacity that they have to take on really, really intense material and to just, just to dive into it. It's, there's quite a bit of fearlessness in many of our performers in that age range right now, they're blowing me away. So mm-hmm. kind of a psychological thriller, teen angst piece meets Survivor. And that's called The Wilds on Amazon Prime. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. Brian, how about you? Well, okay. So I've indulged myself with a bit of Bridgerton. <laughs> and Oh, yes. And Bridgerton. Uh, Bridgerton, yeah. Oh, I mean, God, you Yankees. <laughs> uh, look, it's it's a fantastic fantasy world yeah. that is just so fun and, you know, a little sexy. And I think the performances are really fun. And I had a good time watching it, you know, so that was nice. And now I'm watching Lupin or Lupin, I probably, it's the French, is is a little crime series, a little bit of a misdirection and like a master, the gentleman thief. And it's some really great performances. Talking about kid performances, the young boy who plays the younger version of Lupin is really fantastic. And he's got some really nice, subtle performance going on. And it's all in French, so I'm having to read it. But 
Cool. It's great. It's on it's on Netflix and and it's five episodes and it's really nice. It's really nicely done. So I, I would recommend that. So that's my two. It's really yeah. good, isn't it, to watch foreign TV series. And I watched that German series, Darks. Oh. It's great to dip into these when you can. Yeah, it brings a different aesthetic to yeah. it. Even though yeah. a lot of the stuff that I kind of respond to has something of a more Anglo-American aesthetic in terms of this type of storytelling. But there's a different kind of pacing. There's a different energy to it. I like watching it. Border Border Town is also really good. The Finnish crime series, right? Yes, um, that's I've, I've glanced at that and I thought that looked really yeah. interesting. Actually, it's nice and yeah, the the different aesthetic is is quite nice to see. Right. There's also Money Heist, which is a Spanish yes. series, which is also crime. Really big. Really yeah. big here in Spain. Very, very good. So yeah, so that's what I've been up watching these days. What about you, Carrie? What are you watching? Well, yeah, as you know, I'm a big John Le Carre fan and was very sad to hear that he'd had died recently. And so in homage to him, I reread Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is a fantastic novel. I mean, it's one of his masterpieces, if not his masterpiece. It's just so fantastically atmospheric and the characters are so well drawn. There's a real depth of psychology and detail that that makes his work really more like literature than just a spy novel, even though, you know, the stories and the narrative are really, really gripping. And when I finished the book, I then went on to watch the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy with Gary Oldman as the lead character of George Smiley. Great. Now, we're used to seeing Gary Oldman in the past, you know, more so in the past, tearing up the furniture with his intense and extreme performances. But this particular performance stands out for me because it's completely the opposite. Mm. It is so subtle, so internalised, and it's masterful how he has this very alive internal life but there is the bare minimum happening externally. It's just just brilliant. You know, and he he did actually say that it was a real challenge for him prepping for it because he's usually so expressive that he felt it was like being in a straitjacket a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, but he, boy, did he do it. So my tip this week is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Read the book if you have the time and the inclination and it appears to be something that you might be into, but certainly the movie, purely for Gary Oldman's performance. Great. We do want to hear from you guys. Get in touch with us at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on our Facebook page. Let us know if you have topics that you'd like us to cover, and we would love to hear your questions and comments. And if you want to get in touch with us as individuals, you can get in touch with me at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram and on my Facebook page. Gary, what about you? How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, at Gary Condes, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, but if you really want to get in touch, better off going to my website, garycondes.com. Great. And Andrea, what about you? Where can people get in touch with you? Well, come visit me in Mallorca. <laughs> I, would, I would love to come visit you in Mallorca. <laughs> the pictures look fantastic. It's just that it's a little difficult these days. I know. In the meantime, you can visit me at Andrea Helene 3 on Instagram or at Andrea underscore Helene on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. I think this was a very good look at a very important and very ubiquitous part of the business, which is looking at how to deal with these roles that are seem to be everywhere in the business. So thank you for that. And I'm looking forward to talking to you guys next week about our next exciting topic, whatever that's going to be. And have a good and safe week. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care. 